You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Mark Resimsinski and I, Niels Kastrolarsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. Now, for those of you who are regular listeners, this podcast series is all about voicing our differences on the one topic that brings us together, namely systematic investing, using the often overlooked and very robust strategy of trend following. We hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to learn more by diving into the back catalog and listen to all of the past episodes that you may have missed, like last week's episode with Alan, where we unpacked ways to use trend following as part of a risk mitigation subset of a portfolio, as well as how you can approach building an alternative investment portfolio and much more. Also, I would encourage you to listen to our Wednesday episode, where this week I caught up with two of the most popular global macro thinkers, namely Macro Alf and our own Jim Kazan where they had a solid discussion about how they see the current state of affairs somewhat differently, I might add, when it comes to the future path of inflation and interest rates. But they also found a few places of agreement. So head over and check it out after you are done listening to Mark and me today. Mark, it's great to be back with you after another week where more Fed action and important economic data has been released. But before we dive into all of this, how are you doing? How are things where you are? Good. Always good to talk to you. It's been about six weeks since the last time we were on uh, together. And something always happens in between, Mark, but there we are. Now, Mark, I have to ask you a personal question, and that is, are you familiar with the TV series called Ted Lasso? Yes, I am. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then you know that in it, Ted Lasso encourages his football players to be a goldfish because the animal only has a 10-second memory. And this week's events may suggest that the Fed is actually taking this advice literally because, to some people's surprise, this week was really not about the Fed hiking rates. Let me explain. The most consequential story of this week came out on Tuesday, the day before the FOMC announcement. The Treasury Buyers Advisory Committee, TBAC, released the minutes of their quarterly meeting with the Treasury Department. The TBAC is a high-level group of money center banks and treasury bond buyers that meets with treasury official quarterly to discuss operations of the treasury bond market. The treasury asked the TBAC what the tolerance would be for treasury buying back bonds in the open market. And I'm thinking, what? I mean, the current environment in which we find ourselves can be laid mostly, if not entirely, at the, at the foot of the Federal Reserve and the irresponsible monetary policy that it has pursued, that they even consider resuming market manipulation is incredible. But perhaps it's not surprising. Most likely, the Treasury and the Fed realize that they don't want to take interest rates back to zero again, but they need a plan on how to stimulate the economy when it slips into recession, which could come as early as later this year. Of course, the TBAC gang salvaging over the potential for even greater trading profits wholeheartedly welcomed the plan. At this time, the buyback plan is only an idea, but we may find out that this is an idea that will come to pass maybe as soon as later this year. Aside from the TBAC minutes, there were plenty of lift volatility this week, and it was no surprise that JP Morgan rode to the rescue and bought the trouble First Republic Bank. On Monday, Treasury Secretary Yellen publicly announced that the US banking system is sound and in an attempt to calm nerves and fears that the fate of First Republic is not going to prove contagious. The Fed, as was widely expected, raised the overnight interest rate by 25 basis points and the accompanying statement uh, was worded to sound neutral, not to hawkish, not to dovish. At the post-FOMC press conference, Chairman Powell reiterated Yellen's assurance that the U.S. banking system is sound. The press conference started out as usual softball fest of Q&A until CNBC's senior correspondent Steve Leisman asked Powell about his response when he was informed in February 
that Silicon Valley Bank and several other banks were sitting with hold-to-maturity portfolios that were substantially in the red. Powell responded, and I quote, it wasn't, it wasn't presented as an urgent or alarming situation. It was presented as an informational, non-decisional kind of thing. Leesman responded, I'm sorry, I don't mean to sound argumentative, but the staff report said SVB had significant interest rate risk. It said interest rate risk measures failed at SVB, and it said banks with large unrealized losses faced significant safety and soundness risk. Was that not alarming? Powell's response was basically what has become known as word salad, a response that neither answers the questions nor makes much sense. The chairman was clearly frazzled and quickly moved to some other questions, mostly focusing on if, when, another rate hike would be engineered and mostly reiterating that the US banking system is sound. Judging by the performance of the regional bank ETF down over 40% since March 1st this year, investors aren't really buying that. Finally, we had the employment report, usually the most watched economic data point of the month, but almost an afterthought during a week such as this. Economists had been forecasting a deceleration in hiring from the 236,000 jobs gained last month to about 185,000 this month. Instead, the economy added 253,000 new jobs and the unemployment rate fell to 3.4%, matching the all-time low reach in January of this year. However, that 236,000 registered last month was revised to a gain of 165,000. The takeaway is that despite the Fed's attempt to slow the economy, there remains a worker shortage and job growth remains pretty healthy. All right, Mark, that was a long introduction. Let me bring you in here just to touch on some of the things that have caught your attention. I don't know if you even were thinking about the TBAC um, before I mention it, um, but what a week. So I, I followed the TBAC for a long time and because I was doing some work for the government back in the 80s of uh, you know, monitoring the government primary uh, securities dealers and you know what was their risk profile. Uh, this was an area that I focused in on my uh, academic research. And so, so I've been following for a long time and uh, you know, they really do focus on liquidity issues and then these, these longer term macro issues, but a lot of it does never gets a lot of press coverage. The one thing I could sort of say overall about the, the events of the last week and last month is the phrase that I heard that is applicable to how you look at markets and how you should think about it. One is, is that it's not that is what is unforeseen, but it, what is unaddressed, that's the issue that we often face. So you look at the debt ceiling, okay? It's not that we don't know it's coming. We didn't. We knew it was coming a year ago. It's it's the fact that it's been unaddressed, and so now it's going to become a problem until the last possible minute. There's no reason why people couldn't come together and sort of address this issue right now, or last month, or a quarter ago. You look at the banking crisis. It's not that it was unforeseen. If you know that you're raising rates after keeping rates at zero for a very long time. And you saw banks start to buy treasuries in their portfolio. You know that you're going to be holding losses. Now we could hide some of this with the accounting gimmick gimmickry, but at the same time, is is it's not going away. And all this, and then you look at let's say the big issue about credit and the credit cycle is that that we're going to see that credit is going to be tighter, and and it's not. We know it's going to happen. The question is whether it's going to be addressed. Overall, what does this mean for those people who are quantitative, systematic trend followers? The issue is, is, is that markets are driven by inertia. When you have inertia, this is, is that there, there could be trends. Okay? There's inertia in response to crises. There's inertia in policy responses. And when you have this inertia, what will occur is, is that prices are going to move slower than what we expect. Perfect example is credit. This is that if we reduce the amount of credit or credit becomes tighter, credit as always can be thought of as a lubricant into the financial markets and in the real economy. And if let's say we don't have enough oil in the engine 
where we don't have enough lubrication in the engine, things are going to start to slow down and we're going to sort of see the inertia of this. The sand is going to be in the engine and then that's going to have an impact on prices. And think about where the trends are going to come from. You could have it in commodities because if, if you don't have financing available, the, then prices are going to have to go up. You're going to see it in FX markets. If there's not enough credit available, then the, those that need credit are going to have to are going to start to move away from those that have excess credit. And we know that the FX market is very much driven by the availability of credit. Fixed income markets, obviously, is this is that if you don't have enough uh, credit, is that the cost of credit is is going to go up in terms of what people are going to have to pay as spreads, and and then finally equity markets is if the discount rate is going up or the price of credit is going up, that should have an impact on financial prices. Yeah, no, absolutely, good good insights. All right. Well, in terms of trend following just sort of uh, this week, I would say probably not a, a great deal uh, changed. I mean, we had a pretty strong recovery in April now that the numbers are out. I would say uh, trend follows made back about a third to about 60% of what they lost in, in March. So, you know, that's decent. Um, but and, and I would also say this week or this, the first week of May, has kind of started off um, in in a similar fashion because most of the action we're seeing at the moment is is really in the commodity side of the markets, um, and if you're on the right side of those, uh, there are some some good opportunities. This week, I noticed that there were some decent opportunities in prices like uh, or in markets like aluminum, lean hawks, and even the energy complex, which obviously came under uh, uh, renewed pressure. Uh, let's put it that way. But there were other markets that most likely uh, would have caused uh, a little bit of losses here and there, uh, like live cattle. Uh, we had wheat, soybean oil, cotton correcting a, a bit. And then the financial markets, not a lot. Uh, I mean, equities, um, you know, were fine. Fixed income, probably small losses uh, on that. And currencies, uh, well, I say equities were fine. I mean, not a lot, a lot happened. They probably didn't make money, but not a lot happened. And then same with currencies, um, even despite the Mexican peso from a trend-following perspective, still behaving quite nicely. But I don't think there was much um, to gain from that either uh, overall. So anyways, my own trend barometer is completely stock and neutral at 45. Um, really no conviction either way. And it's been for that all year, uh, really uh, in neutral to weak zone. And that's obviously reflected in the performance and even in the beginning of May as of Thursday we have the B top 50 index down about 1% uh, for the month of May down three and a quarter for the year CT uh, and CTA index down 81 basis points um, down 4% for the year trend index down about 78 basis points down 5.38% for the year and the SG short-term traders index down 45 basis points uh, down 2.6% for the year. Uh, equities doing fine so far this year, up 8.4% for MSCI World, 7.7% uh, year-to-date for the S&P 500 index. And so far this month, the government bonds are completely flat. Now, Mark, uh, we have a couple of things that we may come back to, depending on how much time, because you brought along uh, a long list of points that, uh, uh, that I want to get to first. So we may come back to uh, a little bit about uh, WTI and some recent action uh, that Hal from TransTrend commented on and also uh, some Q1 sort of more broadly based asset class performance that um, that I picked up. But you brought along a lot of points that I'm very interested in um, hearing your, uh, you know, where we're going to go with this. Um, because when I looked at the points, uh, and I mentioned this to you before we pressed record, it looks like on the surface, at least, it's almost like the interchange between global macro and trend following. So I'm sure you're going to correct me if that is a wrong interpretation, but but I'm just going to basically hand it over to you for a while now, I think, and then I'll maybe hopefully uh, be able to add a few uh, points along the way. But um but there is a, a, a structure in the way you've uh, ordered this, so so I better let you be the maestro uh, at this stage. Well, let's let's go back to uh, 
what drives markets. And, and I think that this has been a recurring theme of the way I look about trends in markets in general. This is, is that uh, you say there has to be some stimulus or some underlying cause that causes trends. And so when we started our conversation, we talked a little bit about you know, inertia. And so if, if there is a threat or if there's a cause and that cause is not addressed, that, that will create trends. Okay. So we, we, we know that that's the, that's the case, whether it's the threat of a, of a recession, it's threat of Fed policy that, that causes inertia and that displays in prices. Now, following this inertia and the physics analogy, which we're looking at that, we'll call it, you know, low-level physics is high-level math physics. This is just that, well, what, what causes a trend to change? Well, it's some type of stimulus or some type of event that will cause that inertia to move in a different direction. Okay? And that's why you need to be aware of what's going on in the economy. And, and we spend a lot of time with you know, my partners at Theme Analytics, Andrew Bruner and, and, uh, and my other partners, is that we spend a lot of time on change point detection. And so, so if you say that markets are driven or trends are driven by uh, inertia, trends will stay in place as long as there's nothing to disturb it, then you do have to spend a lot of time on looking at what are the things that cause change and what's the likelihood of change. So now trend followers have two different views on that. So, well, you know, a simple trend follower will say, well, I don't look at any other factors. I just look at what the price is versus a moving average. And then my idea of change point detection is if the price goes back through the moving average, then I'll, I'll reverse my position. We'll say others might use other technical factors to say, has the market overextended as your change point? We think that there are other ways in which you could look at change points, and that's looking at, at different factors, either on a market-specific or macro factors that might detect or give us some idea of whether there's a likelihood of change. And that could be on a sector basis, individual stocks or, or macro markets. And so that's where you sort of say separates you from other trend followers is what is how you deal with change and how do you address this issue of uh, fighting inertia. Now, the way that we look at this or, or way I think about this, and, and I've been thinking about this for a long time, is, is that a good quantitative systematic manager should also be both macro and micro aware. And so, so you say you need to have micro and macro awareness. And so like, well, what does that mean? This is it. Well, it's, it's more than just reading the newspaper, albeit it's, it's, it's good to be aware of just what are the events that might be driving prices and driving markets. But awareness is just being able to say, do we know what are events that could lead to change? And how do we address those events or sort of deal with those periods of uncertainty? Let's take an example. This is it um, on macro awareness. Let's look at the FOMC committee meetings. This is it. I will sort of say that those are well-known dates. We know them well in advance. We, If you look at any kind of analysis, you find this is that there is a what some people call a macro you know, announcement premium associated with the FOMC dates. This is that there's a good chance is that if you're moving in one direction, we have that price inertia. Is that FOMC comes out, you know, uh, Jay Powell says something, <laughs> or the head of the ECB says something, take a guess, the market could move in a different direction. So, so one of the things that you might want to be aware of in your systematic trading, if you're macro aware, is just to say, how do I avoid these events? So maybe I shouldn't trade uh, around those events, or maybe I should reduce risk if depending on my time horizon, you know, when I see that these uh, macro events occur. And the same with, with the employment numbers. We do know that there's a you know, macroeconomic announcement premium it may not be as strong as the FOMC, but it surrounds the, those those events. And so, one way to, to uh, from a systematic a, a way, uh, is just taking account those specific macro events. 
But can I can I interject here, uh, Mark? I mean, that all sounds, you know, um, completely common sense that there are some events uh, that we know can cause prices to move um, in a different direction. But, you know, very often also it happens that the markets continue in the direction because whatever news is coming out is kind of confirmed. It's already, I mean, the, the markets or the trends are already in place. And you can certainly say that despite what the FOMC has done the last past, you know, year up until a few months ago, um, the bonds were, you know, just heading south uh, essentially uh, for a whole year or, or more. The the other point I just want to sort of uh, mention is that, well, I mean, how can we as trend followers take this into account in reality? Because there's always economic data coming out and we can't, we can't adjust our exposure, uh, reduce it every other day just because there is a meeting because there's going to be a meeting somewhere in the world uh, among the big central banks, or there's going to be an unemployment number somewhere in the world uh, among the central banks. So, as I said, it all sounds like, yeah, that that's a good idea, but the practical implementation of it, I, f- I struggle with, if I'm being frank here. Oh, absolutely, and you should, because this is not easy work. So now let's look at there's a spe- – uh, and- when we think about systematic investing, you also have to think about a spectrum of behavior. Okay? And, and the spectrum of behavior is determined by you know the level of complexity of your models, the input of data that you use, and what kind of uh, reaction you'll have to specific events. So so let's let's talk about the spectrum and 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 what I'm suggesting is is that every uh, systematic manager, or if you want to be a systematic trader, is, is that you have to then determine exactly where you want to be on the spectrum. Okay. Simple. So one extreme on this spectrum would say, I'm going to look at for trends in price and I'm only going to use price information. I'm going to balance out my, my risks. I'll build my portfolio, but that's the only thing I'm going to do. I'm not going to take into account any, anything else. I can say is that I could read in, and in that case, macro awareness would be: I'm going to read the newspaper as a, uh, uh, as an, uh, we call it uh, avocation. It's just sort of something I do, but it's not going to be incorporated in my model. Okay, that's that's one approach. Another approach you can sort of say: Well, if I'm a shorter-term trader, macro awareness for change point detection is going to be very, very important. Okay. So my horizon will determine, and I guess say like, well, that in that case is that if I'm looking at a very short-term horizon as opposed to a long-term trend follower, they say, I have to be very macro aware. Okay? I have to look at these change points uh, uh, very closely. The other extreme is, is that, you know, if I just look price, the next level up in terms of, uh, we'll call it uh, awareness and change point detection aware would be to say like, well, I'll use some technical indicators to say whether the market is overbought or oversold. You know, I might sort of say, like, look, I, I have some uh, some uh, analysis that says that, that if if the market's stretch at a certain level, that it's more likely that there's going to be a reversal, and I take into account that. Okay, so that's the next level. And third would be to say, okay, I'm going to be aware of specific events and the behavior of markets, whether it's like I'm going to be very sensitive to, to on a micro awareness, what are the roles and futures? I'm going to be uh, very aware about option expirations, for example. I'm going to be very aware about seasonality in markets. So, so let's say agricultural markets have a very strong seasonality, and I'm going to ca- uh, account for that. Uh, we'll call that micro awareness. Okay. So, so what, I th- what I'm saying is that there's a level of, uh, of you know, complexity that you can add. And now your jo- job is to sort of choose where, what the level of complexity you want to have in your models. Where do you want to be on the, on the spectrum? Okay. Do you want to believe that markets are just, uh, they follows this inertia and I'm only going to use price or do I want to use other things? And we'll call it macro fundamentals might sort of say that, well, I want to take into account the shape of the yield curve, and that might have in some influence on how I sort of position my trend following or what markets I might put added exposure to. So think in terms of the spectrum. 
I think what you make, what the point you make about, uh, you know, the short term um, strategies being aware of these uh, events uh, makes more more sense to me. I think from a practical point of view, um, I think again, if you're a long term trend follower uh, and you've done your testing, or you uh, are fortunate enough to have a long enough track record that goes back, you know, 30, 40, 50 years, you know, your systems have quote unquote adapted to. Uh, are are structured to cope with these uh, events and 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 change points as as you refer to it not to say that that they won't be costly from time to time I'm sure they will um but in the long run um at least we're able to cope but I agree that maybe for for um uh, or in my view for for shorter term systems I think that could be uh, much more uh, appropriate now, and again, I don't know where exactly we're going to go with this conversation. So I might be, I might be asking you a question now that you will come to later. But just bear that in mind. And that is one of the things um, that you and I have observed from many, many decades in in uh, this industry is that you know adding too much complexity in your systems often. Um, shows up uh, at some point uh, in a not so favorable uh, fashion, and 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 robustness comes from simplifying, which is also actually part of the most difficult part of what I think our research teams do is to simplify things uh, as much as possible, not oversimplified, of course. Um, so how do you how do you think about the balance between? Yes, what you say about adding certain levels of complexity, maybe, but yet still wanting to keep things as robust as possible. How do you think about that? Well, let's first talk about the spectrum again in terms of systematic modeling. This is it, and I think you make the good point, and uh, which I agree with hundred percent. The longer the trend model that you have, the less change points you're going to see, or the less. Uh, or in some sense, the less you're going to be influenced by change points. Very, in some senses is that, uh, you know, whether Chairman Powell speaks or not on, uh, on, a, on a Wednesday on a very regular schedule is of no consequence to a long-term trend follower because he's saying this, that I built a model that's going to look through that event. In fact, he might sort of say that the debt ceiling is of no consequence. On the other hand, We'll say credit cycle might be of great consequence. The long-term trend in inflation might be a greater consequence in terms of you know macro events. This is that I'm looking at is with as inflation peaked and is in coming down, and what's the uh, speed in which inflation is is coming down. So uh, I can keep a model simpler when I look over a longer horizon because I can sort of look through the daily events of what's going on as I sort of push in and have a shorter term horizon, then there's going to be more change points that are likely. And I'm going to have to be more macro and micro aware, the tighter I sort of, or the closer I'm looking in in my strategy. So uh, now how do you actually sort of add what's the level of complexity that you have? Is this, is it uh, you want to keep everything simple, but, you know, through testing, you can be able to sort of say a couple things. This is that when I add a new rule, what's the marginal contribution to return to risk? So if you want to say, in, in, you know, I'm not saying sharp ratio is the only approach, but I sort of say, like, if I add this rule, what is the marginal contribution to sharp? But the important part is what's the marginal contribution to sharp after I account for all the transactions costs that would be associated with that. So I could sort of in back testing, I could sort of say, this was a great contribution. And now I can say, well, it's going to increase my trading by 20%. And I know that there's going to be the bid ask spread that I pay and I got to pay brokerage and, and other costs you know, of getting in, in and out. So sometimes, you know, good awareness or sort of adding complexity might be say, what do I do to not trade as opposed to to trade? So, so I think that as an industry, we probably don't spend as much time on what are the cost of transactions? What's the cost of doing business when I build a model? So 
I could add a lot of features. <laughs> but if I don't, uh, but if I don't have a threshold of transactions costs, you know, in reality, that may not may it may actually subtract from my performance between adding it. Okay, and part of it is also is is that looking at uh, doing the careful analysis of not using a specific statistical technique to analyze a market, but thinking about the sample or backtesting period that I have. So if I backtest a, a rule and it was only during periods when inflation was very stable, I could say, yeah, that may not be a good rule to add because what happens if I have a more unstable inflationary environment? And you know, I probably could sort of say from modeling this is that 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 you know I could take one particular rule. I look at the back test over the last three years and then I apply it to a period 10 years ago or 15 years ago when the environment was different, I could get very different answers. Yeah. I mean, um, and again, uh, not knowing exactly where we're going to go in, in this conversation, but, but when I hear um, people to talking about adding uh, other indicators other than price, I think price is, it's just such a wonderful, pure way of analyzing things because it, it takes into account everything, in my opinion, so to speak, uh, you know, psychology of the market on that day and all of these things, you know, positioning and whatever it might be. And I think once you move away from that and let's just say, well, you know, if, 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 if having a rule saying, well, if the Fed hikes by 25 basis points, you know, usually this happens. But as, as you and I have seen in the last uh, just a few last few years, there's been so many examples of markets reacting in a way where you thought that's really not what I expected, right? Like the simplest example was probably COVID where you saw in the whole world being shut down and after a few weeks of, you know, losses, markets took off in a way that was just incredible. I really don't think anyone, very few, uh, had imagined that. So, so how do we, I mean, again, how do we think about that in terms of, 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 of adding these, you know, additional features? Um, but when they're not based on price, how can we uh, be sure that their reaction pattern doesn't change uh, along the way, which I imagine most patterns change? Uh, yeah. Well, a lot of the indicators you're looking at is just that you'd say, well, what's the... Uh, why do we love price? We love price because it's a weighted average of everybody's opinion in the marketplace. So if you have a choice on what other indicators that you want to look at, you want to say others that have maybe cross market that might give us some indication of what uh, the market is thinking across markets. So shape of the yield curve, uh, embedded expectations of inflation. The perfect example of where you, you run into trouble is uh, that data that's that's collected by the government that's from based on past information subject to revisions so a perfect example would be the unemployment number so like the headline for this last friday was really strong and then you look at well, wait a minute let's look at the last two month re uh, revisions in the unemployment numbers and you say like well what we added from the previous month we subtracted for by the revisions did we really, was that really a good employment number or was it masked by the fact that there were revisions over the last two months? So I think that there's a view is that let's look at headlines that's coming from the government and let's extrapolate what that means. But if it's collected data that's subject to revision, that it may not always be a good indicator. So if you sort of say, what type of indicators I want to look at I want to sort of focus in on some transformation of prices, some transformation or some impact that is coming from other markets that might influence uh, trends. So uh, those are going to be more relevant than, than, let's say, stats that are coming from the government that may be based on uh, a look back at prior information and subject to revisions. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Where do you want to go next in your... Um in your change point lecture? 
Well, when you look at change points, we always talked about this this idea of inertia, and so so we we just want to have that the awareness of the fact that that prices of trends represents inertia in markets because there's a slow behavior and uh, there's slow behavior by government, slow reaction from investors, that, which creates inertia. Inertia creates price trends. And you say, well, what, what would cause that price trend to, to change? Well, it has to be some event or some change point that's going to occur. How do we sort of look at the likelihood of that? Now, one area that especially let's, let's talk about crisis a little bit is, is that I'm always re, uh, reminded of some of the work by uh, Sherman Kent. Sherman Kent used to, uh, he was a Yale historian. He also was the, uh, he worked for the CIA for a number of years and he tried to make analysts better at what they do. And I want to go with two directions on this. One is, this is that he always talked about when, uh, when you talk about warnings and you talk about crisis, that there's always takes two to respond to a crisis. There's the warner, and then there's the warnee. There's the person who's giving you the warning, and then there's the warnee who has to accept the the warning. And that there's always t- times is that you could have good warners, but if the warnee doesn't accept it, <laughs> then you're going to have a bigger problem later on. So, so, uh, and when you have a disconnect between warners and warnees, that's when you're going to have trends in price. So now it's not something that I can incorporate in a model, but you should just think about that when you think about why do prices move in a certain direction or what, what do we have in a, in uh, when we look at different crises, whether it's banking crisis or debt ceiling crisis, you have the warners are saying, okay, what, Here's, an, here's the event. Then they'll talk about what's the likelihood. Then they'll talk about the severity. Then they'll talk about when is it going to occur. Okay, so it's likelihood, severity, and timing are what you always want to get right as a forecaster or a warner. But then, but then first is that the warning will sort of say, I don't really think that that's likely. So, so, so they discount the likelihood. Then they'll say, well, I think that this is going to be, a, a, be very severe. They'll say, I don't really think it's that bad. Then finally, is this timing? When will it happen? We'd say like, well, you know, the warner could say like, this is very imminent, and a warning might sort of say, I don't really agree. You're just, you're just a Cassandra. So what I'm going to say it's not going to happen immediately. It's going to happen sometimes in the past. And that disconnect is where we see that there's could be points of dislocation, which could then cause change. Um, and then, and it's going to cause price trends because it's going to take a while for the warner to affect the warnee. So think about that in terms of the banking crisis. We probably knew pretty well what was happening with, uh, you know, some of these banks that were uh, that that blew up back in the fourth quarter. We knew exactly how much security risk that they were holding. So so the. They're already being warned. They were told that this is likelihood. We knew that this is going to be eventual. We may not have known, or we may have disputed severity. But but we'll sort of say that the supervisors were telling us we had bank risk. The uh, whether it's the Fed of San Francisco or the Board of Governors, they weren't really accepting accepting that. Of course, the solution is is that for all of that is is that let's Let's put on more regulation as opposed to uh, let's just be more effective of what we already know. But I think it, it think of that in terms of Warner versus Warney to sort of say, why was there going to be dislocations in market and why does it take a while for for markets to adjust? So why are markets are not always efficient is because there's that disconnect between it takes two to respond to a crisis. Do you think do you think the same could be said at the moment uh, about the de-dollarization? Um, you definitely have people warning about it, uh, but I'm not so sure the warnee um, receives that message uh, or agrees with it. Or, or is that a bit of a too too much of a stretch? Um, no, I think that de-dollarization and all of these are this. This is uh, well, we always want to talk about this systematic in the uh and and 
trends that might exist, we always got to understand what causes those trends or what, what could be leading to trends because you constantly have people who sort of say, well, markets are fairly efficient, you know, you know, trends are being taken out fairly quickly. You know, how can you still make money uh, given all of our level of sophistication, you know, by, by following trends? This is a, this is an age old problem and, and this always is going to exist. You say, look, de-dollarization is this, is it, is it likely not in the immediate, you know, three in three months. So from a timing perspective, it's, we're not going to have a de-dollarization in the next three or six months. But we say, is it more likely if, let's say, that, uh, you know, U.S. hegemony is less and people become more polarized? When you think about, you know, what we've done with sanctions with the U.S. dollars, if people feel as though that there's always the threat of sanctions, then they're going to say, well, I've got to look at some alternative ways to be able to uh, invoice and make payments of, of my, my trade, you, you, you know, for better or for worse. It's not a, you know, value judgment. It just is, is a reality. And say, what's the severity? Well, we're still fairly dollar denominated. This is that this is not going to change overnight. But does the fact that we're going to start invo- invoicing trade in other currencies is, is that is that going to start to have an impact on on decoupling trade with the dollar? And the answer is is yes. And we do know that why is the dollar so important, even from a trend follower's perspective, is, is that if the price of the dollar goes up and most commodities are priced in dollars and invoiced in dollars, it's going to have an impact on commodity demand. And so there is a spillover effect in the commodities markets in terms of being, again, macro aware. This is that if we see that the dollar was very strong, that's going to have an impact on demand for commodities. Now that the dollar is down 12%, we'll sort of say, it's going to have a different impact on commodities. We have to be aware of those relationships, but it's not going to change in the near term to dollarization. So as we've been talking about this, Mark, it, it kind of sounds like that, you know, have a, you have a warner, uh, the warning may not, um, you know, uh, pay attention. Uh, and, and so they, there's a bit of a surprise when it does happen. But I imagine that there is also this issue where, there are a lot of warnings out there and quite a few of them never come to pass. Nothing happens. So, I mean, again, how do we, how do we think about that? How do we deal with this? Because I, the other thing I really like about price as, as the input to a trading uh, methodology is there's just one of them, right? So there's no debate. <laughs> a lot of these other economic uh, indicators um, and and so on and so forth, they they don't necessarily agree, and they give you different uh, indications and signals, and which one should I trust, and which one should I discard, and and um, you know, then you have this thing about people warning about, or not necessarily people, but things looking like something drastic will happen, then it never happens. So, how does that play into your your thinking? Well, when you think about it, is what is price? The price is the arbiter between the warner and the warnee. So, so in some sense, this is it, uh, or it's displaying what is the tension between the two. So, so a perfect example would be as if, if prices aren't reacting to a debt ceiling crisis. What we're saying is, is that the warners are saying we're going to have a debt ceiling problem. This should be embedded in price. This is that the warnings are saying, like, no, nah, I'm not really worried about it that much. So what's the arbiters? They say, like, well, let's look at the price. Prices don't seem like they're uh, they're reacting at this particular point. This is that they're, they're, they're saying there's a crisis, but we're not saying that this is an issue just yet. So it, it, will, it could be or it will be, but not yet. So, uh, so ultimately, is this that, uh, you know, I think that when we're for our discussion purposes, when I say, you want to be aware of this, but at the end of the day, is that the price ultimately is the place where we're going to sort of say where warners and warnees meet, and we'll sort of say which one dominates at a given time, or which what 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 is going to be the uh, the balance between you know the warning of a catastrophe versus the fact that we're we're going to look beyond it. It's it's price. So, but to me, that just brings us back to price in the sense that that's all we need. I mean, I, I literally believe that uh, 
from from having started my career uh, without rules, uh, you know, uh, on the on the, the quote unquote discretionary side. But then once I discovered rules, and once I discovered that price is so powerful. But to me, yes, there are lots of other things we could look at. But I think it is more confusing to try and make sense of these other things because even if you're right about that the debt ceiling is an issue, we don't know when and we frankly don't know exactly how markets are going to react. Our, our treasury is going to be the, 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 the place people seek safety, um, even though that might sound silly if they're going to default, but who knows. Um, or is that where they're going to dump uh, their 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 um, you know dump the bonds? So I have to say, I mean, I I'm still not convinced that I need to look much further than price. Well, there's no question is is that uh, as we've always said, price is primal. You know, so we've said this in, in uh, I, no, I've said this in, in this uh, podcast. So. So we start as our null hypothesis, or the where we start from is that price is primal. Now the question is, is counseling is, is that are there ways or are there things that we could do to give us a little bit of an edge beyond the idea that price is primal? Is there some things that could sort of say that can we avoid potential blowups? Can we be able to sort of see whether markets are overextended, where the the likelihood that there's that prices are going to reverse? Are much higher than the likelihood of them going higher. Okay, so in some sense, this is that you say, well, what do you do as a systematic investor, as a researcher? What, what do you spend your time on? <laughs> so, so, so we'll sort of say the holy grail is to try to find those uh, those indicators, those change points that use some awareness about what's happening in other markets or what's happening in the macro to give you a little bit of edge to say, if I'm saying that price is primal, we do know that once the market wakes up to a change, that it can change fairly rapidly, that the crowd will change and that there could be a rapid adjustment. And so you're constantly saying is that if, if only just a couple times a year or if for a couple of events I could create a little bit of an edge in my uh, in my favor, could that distinguish me from uh, my peer group that is often doing some of the things that are very similar? Yeah. And, and I, I will say that thinking about it as I hear you speak, I mean, there's one thing that sort of springs to mind to me where I think that maybe this could be useful. And that's actually flows. That's kind of capital flows, meaning, you know, because price, you know, the price may not go down, uh, say, uh, on any particular day. But if you notice that there is just so much more, so many more sellers, I mean, or I don't, and I don't look at the uh, commitment of traders report, but I know that a lot of, you know, some people re refer to that. But, but the idea of noticing how investors are, are changing or voting with their feet you know, I, I certainly wouldn't rule out that there is some value in that that you may be able to extract. Um, so I'm more in that camp where you can kind of tie it into an action that you can see in the markets, uh, whether it's volume or, or, or something like that, uh, rather than an indicator. But I want to make sure we get through all of your points before we run out of time. So, um, but, but I think that you really do make a good point in, in, in terms of, uh, you say, well, we're, we talked about what not to use. So for example, we sort of said like re revisions of unemployment numbers. So, so uh, there are other areas is that what should you use? So commitment of traders, I think is very useful. Most of the time it really doesn't tell you much. Okay, so- And sometimes it doesn't come out for three weeks. It, well, there's the delay <laughs> issues, but you'd say like, we do know that if uh, certain, groups of traders are positioned at one side of the market and you get to an extreme that that crowd that means is that uh, from a awareness or change point detection view is, is that if a crowd is is very uh, is poised on one side of the market versus another then we'll say the likelihood that a small change in uh, expectations will tilt the balance and cause people to go the other way the other thing we, we do know that flow and volume 
does tell us about, you know, sort of whether, you know, people are changing expectations, whether there, uh, there's more uncertainty, because in some sense is, is that if you have more volume, then that means you have more buyers and sellers, you know, coming to market with difference of opinions. So more volume is telling us, well, there's more uncertainty here because I've got more people who want to say whatever position I had yesterday, I'm, I'm going to make a change to my position today. And, and, and so, so that is telling us that there's some uncertainty that's being resolved what's going on. In the longer term, you say, well, if there's flow of money coming in, whether it's if you look at uh, you know, flow of buying of ETFs, if you look at flow into certain asset classes, that is telling you is, is, is that, okay, if there's flows with, uh, with price action, that that might be something that's telling us is, is that there's an enhancement of what's going on. So, so this is an area which is actually it could be trend or price reinforcing or it could also tell us what's the direction of the crowd. And the crowd all of a sudden could uh, uh, say, we could say that price is primal, but at the same time, the crowd will, uh, will give us an indication of whether we're overbought or oversold. The last few points in your, um, in your list, um, I see some Things about machine learning, maybe scalability, inflation, growth cycles. Um. So, so I will sort of say that there has been, uh, you know, the buzzword is everybody's got to use machine learning, and uh, you know, I probably would sort of say that uh, I, I've had to uh, re-educate myself, but I sort of increased my uh, my awareness. We'll call it. We'll talk about macro, micro awareness. I could say to say. Technique awareness is also important too. Is is that you know should I be using this? Should I be looking at this? And and in some senses, is that the answer is yes. But sometimes these techniques is that eh, you know are they really going to add a lot of value? I, I think that uh, I'm s- still making that. My judgment is out on some of it. But what I wanted to try to talk to you about this is that why, why do why do we need machine learning and I'll take it at a very high level is, is that most of the statistic work we do is using regression. So um, it may not be from a trend follower perspective, but generally it's going to be based on regression and regression is very linear. Okay. But yeah, I'm trying to fit a line through a set, a set of data points. Okay. Uh, the one thing that we've learned if you trade markets for a very long time is that markets are very nonlinear. Okay. So they don't behave in this a straight line. So so the so a trend line is not a linear line. A tra- uh, trends can can be very nonlinear in behavior. So uh, a perfect example is is that there are a number of traders who often used back back from the eighties and, and probably still currently is a breakout systems. A breakout system is a nonlinear system. It's saying this is that okay if uh, I don't trade if the prices are within a range. But if it moves beyond this, you know, the high of, a, of from, you know, some period in the past, then it breaks out of that range. I'm now going to take a position. This is the, that by, by definition, any trend person or systematic traders that uses that type of model is thinking about markets in a nonlinear fashion. And so what is machine learning getting at? Is, is that, and one of the things I think it's trying to focus on is to say, what happens if the world is nonlinear? What happens if I can't just fit a line through this? That there's more complexities in how prices behave in the past that I could extrapolate into the future. The information that I might use from other sources to be able to uh, to determine or forecast in the future. And I think that we could think in terms of nonlinearities. So, from a listener's perspective. What you want to try to say is, is that do I have a model that can account for the fact that markets are nonlinear or how do I sort of capture nonlinearity in markets? And I think that that's what I want to try to, what we should often focus in on. Yeah. Which, uh, 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 and I don't know if, if we made that clear, but I mean, that's obviously one of the advantages we believe trend following has is that we, we participate in some of these silly price movements that no one can really fathom can happen 
Um, you know, like when bonds were coming down in terms of yield at 2%, people were saying, well, clearly they can't go any lower. And they just kept going and ended up negative in Europe, of course. Um, and um, and oil prices going negative a, a couple of years ago. Well, the other area where uh, when you think about machine learning or unsupervised learning, because you're supervised and unsupervised learning, is this is that it's sort of saying, let the data speak for itself. In some senses, that's the mantra of machine learning. And I think the same applies for various traditional trend following. This is that uh, you know, a trend follower doesn't impose that one market is going to have to behave a certain way if another market does the same thing. So uh, you don't try to sort of impose a model upon prices. So let's take, for example, if you're trading a number, you know, twos, fives, tens, and thirties, you know, on the treasuries, this is that, you know, one way that if you did your principal components analysis, you look at this, say that they will say that the yield curve usually moves up, you know, uh, parallel in parallel fashion. So, so all markets should be the same. So a trend follower said like, now I'm going to look at the twos, fives, tens, and thirties as each in an individual market. And I'm going to let that price trend speak for itself. And so it's possible that I could have, you know, prices that I'm short the front end and I'm uh, long the long end, but I'm not because I've imposed a view on the yield curve. It's just say, this is what prices tell me. So in some sense, I'm looking at this uh, as each market uniquely. I'm not imposing a model upon it. I'm doing this on an unsupervised basis. And in some sense, those are some of the things that a, uh, that a machine learning was looking at. It's, it's say, I'm going to look for relationships that may or may not exist based on past data. Anything else, uh, Mark, that you want to educate us uh, about today when it comes to change points and, and some of the work you guys uh, do and look at? Well, the one thing I'm going to come back to in our, in our next is sort of the intangibles of quant trading versus discretionary. And we sort of, uh, you know, and I, I want to come back to this this person, Sherman Kent. Uh, and I'll, I'll leave this as almost as a, like a teaser for the next time we, we talk. So, so, so one of the things that he did is, is that when you had these CIA analysts, say, and they, they'd give their assessment, they'd often use words. And they'd sort of say like, well, you know, some event was probably not going to happen. And so if I said something, uh, it's probably not going to happen. What's the, what would you sort of give that if I, if you actually had to give it a probability, what, what probability would you give that to? Probably 20% or less, right? That yeah, it was we'll, happen, we'll sort yeah. of say that, that. So, so there have been people who have looked at this, they call words of estimatable estimative probability and they say like well if we survey what do uh, uh, what do a group of people think they heard when they said that and that's probably about 25 percent as a probably not but the range was actually between 50 percent and zero so uh if you sort of say we believe what do you think the probability of when i say we believe the rates are going to go up what what would you give that as a probability i would say 70 percent plus you're, you're pretty good. This is that it's about 75, but again, the range was between 40% and 100% when someone says that. So let's go back to where we were. We talked about is price is primal. This is, is that like if some analyst is in, or if you're in an investment committee and someone say, well, we believe interest rates are going up, you can have all, uh, you can have a big range of opinions on what that means. Okay. But when you look at a, trend following model if you look at prices you'd say well what do you really believe well i believe that you know past prices have been going higher that's what it tells me right now so my guess best guess is that they will continue to go higher in the next period going forward that's what a trend follower will do that's what the way he looks at that so and or, and then on top of that mark it's a good point you make there I would say for those who may not be sort of in the nitty gritty of how we do things, if you think about a trend following model and, you know, uh, some models uh, like the ones that I work with, I mean, we will have hundreds of smaller subsets of 
of uh, quote-unquote confirmations we need to build up the full picture of the strength of the trend we believe. So so essentially, if you just took it as a simple scale from zero to 100, you know, anything above zero, you're long, and at 100, you're fully long. So on any one given day, um, our trend strength in a market will be, you know, 50% or 55 or 57 or 63, whatever. And what I like about it is that it actually then incorporates, quote unquote, the probability of how strong the model believe in that the price trend will continue. Because if it didn't believe in it, so to speak, it would probably have a relatively low trend strength, right? But if it is at 100, uh, so all these sub signals are pointing in the same direction, you could say on that day at least, the uh, the conviction or the in, or, or the probability of that trend continues continuing uh, is pretty strong in the model. So that's what I like about it. Uh, that well, it's you know, you you really focus it on on the number one point is don't ask my opinion. Show me what your positions you have in the marketplace. So it's a you can't sort of say if you say like well I really believe gold is going higher no. Show me whether you're long gold and, and tell me how big that long uh, gold position is vis-a-vis -vis everything else you hold, period. And, you know, that's a great, that's another great point, Mark, because I remember uh, about a year ago that I was picking up from people attending conferences with big hedge fund managers that a lot of them were very bearish um, correctly. However, when they were then asked so what's your position? A lot of them were just saying, well, we're in cash, right? So they weren't short bonds to a large extent. They weren't short equities to a large extent. They were just in cash. So I think you're very, it's a very, very important point, this thing about, yeah, we can have our beliefs, but if we're not willing to put the money, you know, our money where our mouth is, it means nothing. And I think this is my, this is generally, and this is, I mean, it's a criticism, of course, but, you know, it's not a personal criticism, but when you see a lot of quote-unquote experts coming on CNBC and Bloomberg and all of that, these are people who have no positions. The good ones will have positions and they will be worth listening to. But most of them, economists, strategists, whatever they're called, they have no position in the market. Um, and if they did, it's not their own money, right? So this is why I really discount any value in a lot of this. Anyways, I'm obviously preaching to the choir here, but but I think that th those points are really important. And that's why I have such great faith in the uh, continuation of trend following as a strategy that uh, will always add value. And I think I want to do more. Uh, I, I know there's an, a paper that came out, not, again, just you know, confirming some of the things we've talked about, but I'm going to read up on it and maybe bring it up uh, next week or the week after with one of the other guys. But anyways, this has been fascinating, Mark. Any final thoughts on on the topic or are you going to keep that as a teaser for yeah, next month? We'll keep that as a, as a teaser. And I think one of the other things we want to come back to is, is a little bit about, uh, you know, skew. And uh, I think that uh, a... Uh, some some people have done it. Uh, Quantica has done some interesting work in where you look at this. Is it like a, a trend follower can be uh, have you know, negative skew in the very short run? Okay, you have a crisis. Is is it like okay, I get blown up and then, but then in the longer run, is is it as a crisis actually works its way through? This is that, and if you look at a longer horizon, a, a trend follower can have positive skew because oftentimes. They'll hang on to trends longer than other people. They'll often get out of stuff quicker, or they get, or, uh, they'll either get out uh, themselves or involuntarily with stops, and so, so you get this negative skew in the very short run. But in the long run, you get this positive skew because because you're you're going to get on these trends and you're going to stick with it. So that when we talked about that again, then inertia. You say, especially if longer term, the inertia will sort of give you positive skew if you can hang on. And if, let's say, some uh, some events work itself out, it, what we talked about this is that these crises uh, are are uh, unaddressed as opposed to unforeseen. This is that creates positive skew, and so uh, I think that that's something we should also uh, talk about because I I really think that that's a 
interesting uh, dynamic that you may not see in other strategies that's relevant. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree with that. I have not yet le- uh, read the paper from uh, Quantica, but I'm definitely going to catch up on that. And it ties kind of nicely into what Alan and I talked about last week. This uh, Makita paper, where they divide uh, some of these risk mitigation strategies into ca- uh, uh, different categories, like first responders, second responders, and diversifiers. And the second responder category, where trend following falls into, um, you, you kind of really feel, you know, the importance. Uh, of that category, even if you want to try and sort of just put it to a normal analogy of an emergency, a medical emergency, sure, a first responder is, is very important and can do stuff, but they can't they can't keep the patient alive for very long. You need the the uh, the part of the emergency team that has the equipment and 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 can stay there for a long time. Uh, and and I speak from personal experience, as most of the listeners will know that second responders are incredibly important uh, as well. So anyways, uh, this was fascinating, uh, Mark. I, I truly enjoyed it. Um, and obviously, I, I fully understand why this is a, a topic that you're really diving into with your colleagues uh, at the moment. So go and check that out, uh, Mark's new outfit. You can obviously find the link and follow Mark in the show notes. And if you like these conversations that we put out every week, uh, we would be ever so grateful if you would go and rate and review them on iTunes, Spotify, uh, Amazon, wherever you listen to podcasts. We certainly would love that. And of course, if you wouldn't mind, take a few minutes of your time and maybe share uh, a link. Uh, You can share a link called toptradersonplug.com forward slash share. If you send that to your friends and colleagues uh, or anyone who's interested in investing global macro what's going on in the world um hopefully they'll find a safe space here at top traders unplugged next week uh jim is back on the podcast uh not that he hasn't been back but uh, on the systematic investor series so we're going to have a chat about what's going on in the vol space i think and other things so uh send in your questions to info at toptradersunplugged.com and i'll do my best to get an answer from you um I think that's all for today. A couple of big events also happening today. Mark, uh, Warren Buffett is holding his court and there's a certain King Charles that is also holding his court and getting a crown on his head uh, as we speak. Um, So lots of things to to dive into, uh, I'm sure. But in any event, we appreciate people coming here, listening to us uh, every week. So from Mark and me, Thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. And until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.